past and future of polling, this week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. The polls were off more than usual in the last presidential election, and the polling industry is under a lot of strain. But public opinion surveys are still the best way to understand the views of the American public and can still be useful for predicting elections and demonstrating public support for policy initiatives. What can be learned from the history of polling about how to get it right, and how is polling evolving to avoid degrading? This week, I talk with G. Elliott Morris of The Economist about his new Norton book, Strength in Numbers. He finds that polling has mostly been on a long upward trajectory. Pollsters have always had to adapt to new challenges of their time. But public opinion is so fundamental to democracy that Morris says we have to get it as close to right as we can. That starts with acknowledging the difficulties and lowering our expectations for precision. Here's our conversation, which started with the story behind Strength in Numbers. So give us the uh, pitch. Uh, what are the big takeaways uh, for, from Strength in Numbers? Well, I'll answer a slightly different question, which is why I wrote the book. And along the way, you know, you know kind of answer your question. Um, so I'm right. I'm a data journalist. I both cover polls and forecast elections. So like t- to the extent that understanding polls is part of my job, I wanted to write this book to help explain them to other people also in just the sort of education journalism sort of way. So, um, you know, I, I started with the 2016 and then while I was writing the book, the 2020 election happened, which are like not <laughs> exactly good examples for the polls. So it sounds kind of crazy to write a book about polls right now. And so, but part of the thing I, I wanted to do was to explain to readers, you know, why the errors we saw in the polling for those presidential elections wasn't in fact um, so atypical, or at least not as atypical as the media made it seem, and to explain to readers how polls work under the hood so that maybe they'll be more accepting of larger errors in the future. So while I'm doing research for that, you know, reading the archives of the American Public Opinion Research and Political Opinion Quarterly or Public Opinion Quarterly, what, what have you, you know, this other thread pops up in pollsters and academics writing, which is to me much, much more profound as the consumer of polls and of their writing. And that is this democracy angle that you don't just want to do public opinion surveys before an elections to predict elections. You want to do it for much more important reasons, figuring out what the public wants the government to do on certain issues, but even more basic than that, what issues they want the government to focus some attention on. You know, it's, it's not just do you approve of welfare spending, but are you having trouble paying your rent or affording groceries, putting food on the table, that sort of thing. And, and all that data can be used to increase what uh, the quality of the representation people get. At least that's that's the sort of main thread in some of the more democratic writing on the polls. And so that's what the book becomes, right? I, I take my pollster and election forecaster hot, hat off a little bit and put on the sort of like citizen hat. And I think that the book is serving that purpose in, in a new way. Um, and, and that's also sort of the progression of the book set into thirds. So also there's a bit on forecasting, there's a bit on the history of polling and a bit on methods and sort of where the industry goes from here. So you were last on the the day after the 2020 election. I was very nice after you had been up uh, all night to make you come back. Um, and uh, as you say, uh, the polls were off for the second uh, consecutive uh, presidential election. But in the book, you sort of come down on the side of they they were off, but uh, not by more than we should have uh, expected. So did, did anything change in your um, in your view uh, from experiencing uh, the 2020 election and sort of the, the repeat repeated performance of the polls? The, the polls in 2020 were worse than in 2016. The error was, I think, about one point five times as large at the, at the state level. And of course, it's almost double at the national level. So, so, the, so the polls are worse. I think the, the book says that. But right, the claim I'm, I'm sort of advancing is that um, if, if you look at these polls individually, if you study response rates for polls and you ask pollsters how their methods break down, what they'll tell you is that when people aren't answering the polls uh, as, as often as they used to, you know, we, we have response rates maybe around 1% or 5%, depending on how you do a poll now, then you have a higher chance for error. Uh, due to the people answering your poll not being representative of the population as a whole. And so in 2020, this is worse because 
seems like the error is from Republicans not answering the polls. And that's what APOR has said, the American Association for Public Opinion Research after the 2020 election. And that's a pretty huge problem for pollsters because there's no correct number or, you know, to, to, a, de- to a decimal point or what have you of the number of Republicans in the electorate. And so you can't wait your data. You can't wait your poll after the fact to adjust for that. You have to, you have to increase the quality of your sample before you're even doing those um, adjustments. So I would say the polls are definitely, uh, you know, they're, they're battered, they're bruised. The pollsters have a lot to figure out, but they're not um, broken. This, this tool that's suffering more from non-response on a political dimension uh, is sort of encountering more problems than pollsters have ever had before, but there are sort of the same patterns that have ex- existed in the past. And so hopefully pollsters can innovate. And the book talks about some ways they're trying to do that. So we expect too much of, of polling or at least too much precision. Uh, what what should we uh, expect uh, from, from polling? Yeah, I would say... If you're writing a headline about how the polls are catastrophically broken or you should never trust the polls again, then you're on the side of the, you're on the spec, the point of the spectrum that's like you're expecting too much out of them. Um, equally, if you're like writing an election forecasting model and betting your entire life savings on an outcome, then maybe you're expecting too much precision out of those polls, at least if you're like writing an election forecasting model with with the polls. The position I take as both a forecaster, and I'll continue to do forecasting, but as someone who wants to use polls for this broader purpose, that if you're a reporter on the polls or if you're consuming the polls, then you should not expect them to have, you know, one per or two percentage points of error on a candidate's vote share or something. You should expect that to be five or six percentage points um, for, for an individual poll. Uh, you know, on average, and then it can be even worse than that. If non-response is higher, if the question wording or likely voter filters or what have you, and I understand I'm being kind of wonky here, are are wrong. Um, and the more fundamental problem is that if people aren't as likely to answer the phone, and you're not able to predict that with their demographic traits, as pollsters um, currently don't seem to be able to do with 100% accuracy, then the entire industry can be biased in the same direction. So it's hard to put a number on here, but it seems like the conversation is wrong. What, what I tell people is just to take the margin of error and double it. That's what the science tells us that the sort of true size of the margin of error is. Um, and if the outcome you're trying you know, to, to rule out is within that margin of error, then don't rule it out. Don't, don't write your article about how a candidate is going to win the election for sure. Don't write an article about how this race has shifted, you know, three points with a single poll um, and then sort of treat the tool as the product of um, a scientific research process that has lots of assumptions that, you know, that's, that's pretty artful and not offering you laser-like predictive accuracy. So a lot of the book ended up being on the history of the polling. What did you uh, personally learn uh, new from that history? Well, the best story I, I found in the archives uh, was, was of this character named Emil Herja. Emil Herja is, is, I guess, essentially the first election forecaster. He, he might be considered the first scientific pollster, depending on how you define scientific. Um, and he's, uh, you, you know, not, not someone that you're aware of in the way that we're aware, aware of George Gallup, who sort of started the first polling firms, um, but may, may, may not have, in fact, been the first person producing polls for a president or for public. So Emil Herja, he's uh, this, the son of some Finnish immigrants in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. He's sort of an everyman <laughs> in the way that men were in that era in the nineteen late nineteen twenties, early nineteen thirties. When he's working, he like goes to gold mines in Alaska and owns a newspaper in Breckenridge, Texas, and then goes and trades oil futures on the New York Stock Exchange. Um, and then he gets involved in political polling after doing all, all of that. Oh, I should say he's also an ambassador um, to World War One peace talks <laughs> for the University of Washington. So um, he's 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 ever he's doing everything, and he settles on polls in, in part because um, of, of his sort of Finnish immigrant background in, in mining. He's um, he talks to mathematicians and statisticians um, from Minnesota, and thinks, well, 
you know, this sampling process for mining where you hit a rock in a mine and if you see ore, then you mine more there for more ore is sort of similar to how you like mine public opinion where if you take a sample, it, it could be relatively representative of the population as a whole. Uh, and, and you know, that, that is the sort of fundamental uh, uh, basis for polling. Also, by the way, the fundamental problem, which I'm sure we'll get into. Um, and so he, uh, he conducts polls for the Democratic National Convention Committee in 1932. He's rather successful. He predicts that Franklin Roosevelt's going to win by like 7 million votes. He wins by 7.1 million. He's immediately heralded as in the press as sort of the crystal gazer of Crystal Falls or the wizard of Washington. And he becomes Franklin Roosevelt's, um, you know, his pollster. And he's not conducting polls in the way that we would want someone to conduct polls now. He's like sending out members of the DNC uh, to go canvas, you know, work progress sites and sending that data back to Washington. He's taking some of the literary digest polling and reweighting it based on how inaccurate it was in the previous election. And he takes some of George Gallup's data too and, and puts it into early versions of polling averages and, and that sort of thing. He, he invents lots of the tools that we use today, even though we don't give him credit for that. Uh, so that was, I think, the most interesting story I, I stumbled upon. So uh, histories that I've read of, of polling by historians are, I guess, unsurprisingly more, more negative. They uh, come, come at it maybe from a less uh, quantitative per- perspective, but they tend to emphasize that uh, polling did have um, an effect on, on the American public's view of itself, but it tended to kind of valorize the, what the average person believed uh, and uh, social comparison uh, across uh, individuals and, and groups, uh, and that it, from the beginning, implied unrealistic. Uh, precision. That is, it was always um, was always snake oil, uh, at least a little bit, in terms of uh, being able to say this is this is the big new thing. So, so what do you think? Is that history too negative? I think those are valid criticisms of the polls at the time they were written. Um, poll- polling has, to the extent that polls are the result of a single scientific process, it's not one that's invented overnight or over the you know, a few year lifespan of a polling firm, but at this point, basically over, over a century. So um, those methodological criticisms, I think, I think ring true for early polling. And, you know, by the way, there are still pollsters who don't really pass methodological muster today. So there are some bad eggs in um, the polling industry, or I'd say some bad pollsters around the edges, some of them in the market research industry that conduct political polls uh, for attention or political sultans who do the same thing for for clients, um, and and then we have ideologically biased pollsters today too. So certainly you can't trust every poll. That's sort of the methodological critique. I think uh, the the real advice here is to is is actually some some hard hard advice. You have to look at the poll that you're that's presented in front of you. You have to ask yourself questions about the methodology, whether or not it's being conduct- conducted in a transparent way. If they're sharing their information about how they're conducting the poll, that's a pretty good sign. And if they're not, pretend to disregard that information. If they seem ideologically biased, you know, et cetera. So you have to exercise some discretion, just like you would exercise discretion over the result of some other scientific process, like an academic journal article or what have you, except, you know, at least there you have peer review. You don't necessarily have that for polls. There is a... Um, criticism of of the pollsters that I cover in the book that's not so methodological but more theoretical about polls tending to lead politicians in areas that they shouldn't be led. So on wars, maybe on questions of rights. Um, and I would agree with those too. You definitely don't want to use a poll for everything. And I'm and to the extent that the book is like advancing an argument from the pollsters, it's certainly not advancing what the political scientist Sidney Verba also decried uh, calling it government by survey. And uh, and I think that would be a sort of uniquely bad idea for all these reasons of uncertainty, but also because, you know, you can think that you can think of an advocacy organization releasing a poll uh, and, and pushing their side of, um, or, you know, pu- pushing their their issue that they have a, a pre-baked opinion on, um, and then government opinion being tied to that. That's also sort of a plainly bad idea. So uh, there's definitely limits in what you should use polls for. The way I'm thinking about it is that uh, imagining a counterfactual sort of American history or a political environment today where you don't have polls also seems uh, bad or maybe even even worse, I would say. So 
Um, that's the, the balance I'm trying to strike. What about the more social historical critique? Uh, you, you portray this as being about uh, putting democracy uh, in action, uh, but, but other historians portray it as more of an outgrowth of consumer marketing research. It's about um, figuring out how to manipulate the, the public to, to sell products and moving that into the, the political arena. Um, or it's about establishing what normal is uh, and uh, sort of putting a positive spin on normal and a, um, a, a negative spin on outliers. So I really like Sarah Ego and uh, Joe Lepore's histories of polling and also, you know, of like political targeting and whatnot in, in their histories of um, some of the early uh, pol- basically political presidential political consultants. Um, and, you know, one, one of the quotes I, I remembered that's in the book that's from the research for the book is um, George Gallup recalling why he went into polling. And right, it's not it's not for the democracy reasons, as you say, it's because. He literally wondered aloud to himself, well, if it works for toothpaste, why not politics? So, you, you know, you're right. Like that, I think that is a potentially nefarious original intent for the polls. But to the extent that we have something pretty powerful here, I, I think polling needs um, some people to argue for using it in, in good ways. Maybe I would say even if it's not used optimally all the time, then um, we in the press who are already serving the people in a way should also use this tool to, to be serving them as well. So you're pretty optimistic on the trajectory as well that we've learned new things and that's helped us uh, do polling better at least over the long time period. Uh, but there's certainly been a lot of uh, complaints about uh, contemporary uh, polling. So I guess let's just start with the, the basics of low response rates uh, and, and potentially unrepresentative uh, samples. Most of the polls we read are either from you know two to three percent response rate phone polls or uh, from online polls that are originate essentially in, in paid opt-in survey takers uh, who take a lot of surveys. So why, why should we believe either one of those? The first response is why should we believe them? Well, they're reasonably accurate. They're basically what you would expect for the, the job they're doing, or maybe even, maybe even better considering those technological problems, those problems of low response rates of really polarized public also means you have to get a pretty good sample of all the individual groups in the public to have a decent poll. So, so why should we trust them? Well, they do a pretty good job, even when they're so-called wrong, even when they miss elections, if they're off by two or three percentage points. Yeah, that's a lot in election in an election, but in the broader purpose of polling and how they're, or, or at least in the democratic sense, not in the market research sense, and, and how they're read in Washington by elected leaders, bureaucrats, issue advocacy organizations and interest groups, a two, a two or three percentage point error on a poll showing you know, 60 or 65% of the public in favor of something or 20 or 30% of the public saying they're having trouble paying rent or food or or whatever is actually not um, that big, that big of a deal. In in the latter chapters of the book, while the book is optimistic in this democracy sense, it's certainly pretty, I think, realistic about the problems that pollsters face right now, which is Republicans, at least right now, are not as likely as Democrats to take surveys. And that's there's literally no concrete methodological solution to that problem. There's only really more guesswork or a lot more money spent on higher response rate polls with new methodologies, or in this case, actually, with all, with the original methodologies, which is fielding surveys by mail. And pollsters have found higher response rates, better uh, representation of conservatives and of um, uh, r- religious sort of conservatives, evangelicals, Mormons, um, traditionally under poll groups. And so that, that is promising, but you know, we, we won't know if that works until like we know it doesn't sort of break down in similar ways as, as the past. And so really the, the optimistic case here is, well, there's been misfires before, you know, the first test of scientific polling in 1948 was a pretty big miss. The 1936 polls, which were the first ever scientific polls by Gallup were off by 12 percentage points on the presidential margin of victory. You know, they were off by four percentage points last time. So there is this sort of, I don't know, march march toward progress for the pollsters. There's this long-term positive innovation that has helped them measure the public better. But um, right, it's not perfect. And there's, there's no guarantee that that's going to continue in the future. It's certainly not in perpetuity. Is that just because we've been lucky about uh, what is correlated with, with non-response uh, and what 
we think might be. That is, we have ways of, of correcting for things we can anticipate might be correlated with non-response if it's not strictly partisanship, as, as you mentioned. Um, but uh, just looking at my, my own uh, online surveys, when we get to stuff that maybe wasn't anticipated, uh, like how many people are working from home or how many people have a long commute, uh, you tend to get these bigger biases because of just the kinds of people who are available to take online surveys and no one's trying to correct for that kind of bias. So is it possible that we actually just are lucky uh, and there's a lot of ways to get to a poll that's near 50-50 for elections. And so it's it's looking better than it is. Yeah, closer elections may, to some extent, closer, more polarized elections make the job of pollsters easier in that they can just wait to the results of the last election and like get reasonably close. The, the, The way we know that polls have you know, some degree of, of qualities by m- matching them with government benchmarks or by doing simulation tests where pollsters create different versions of the polls and see, you know, whether or not their responses uh, or the, the averages for issue opinions change markedly by shifting the political distribution of the polls um, in, in ways that like their demographic models aren't already taking uh, into account. And right. I mean, there again, it's a story of, of, of uncertainty um, and an argument that I think therefore for sort of lowering our expectations for what we want out of this tool. You know, again, if you're expecting like one or two points of bias on, on average, then that, that might be too low. But if you're making decisions on polls that have pretty clear, robust um, methods with findings that are the same across firms or methodologies or questions, then you're, you're sort of like doing it dope you know, quote, I guess, right way. So talk about the interaction between uh, sort of what polls can do, but also the characteristic of public opinion on on elections. I mean, we've been mostly talking about things like a presidential poll where most people do have uh, an opinion about which candidate they like better. Um, We're currently in the primary cycle. We have a bunch of low salience races, obviously harder to do both turnout and uh, vote vote choice there, but also you might just have people whose opinions are not uh, that that strong at the time that you uh, t- take the interview. So h- how do the characteristics of the election uh, interact with these problems in polling? Well, one thing I don't really get into in the book, partly because of space, but also it's like the narrative structure of the book is a bit different than an academic book, um, is, is a few other iterations on top of the sort of yes, no, do you support this thing or not? Do you know about this thing or not? Polls. So there's like deliberative polling where you would field someone a poll first and sort of a larger um, experiment or um, you know, re- research study. And then you would have conversation, you disseminate information, you would let them talk to each other and then you'd pull them again. That's a better match for the democratic process or at least how people process information to the extent that you're looking at a group that's processing information. But we know, I think one of the undercovered biases, and again, something not totally mentioned in the book, but something I talk about elsewhere, um, is this bias towards high political engagement people. We know that has downstream effects. I think maybe you've even talked about this recently on, on your podcast about how um, high, high political engagement could be exaggerating polarization on issue opinions or precedents or, or what have you. Um, and it's so, you know, we, I sort of I keep going back, right? There's, there, there are lots of arguments against certain use cases for the polls. Um, and, and there are ways that they break down and there are some ways that, that they're pretty robust and there are areas where, they, where pollsters definitely need to do more work, at least from my sort of outside reading of how they work. Um, and I, I think this question over whether or not we're more polarized or we're much less polarized than, than we seem to be based off of what looks to be a pretty strong correlation in the increase of polarization over the last 20 years and the, de- the decrease in response rates um, is not one that, that, that the book ever gets into, but um, is s- sort of one, of one of the more interesting things that maybe we could have included in an epilogue if we had more time. Um, the, uh, I guess the other thing... I, I think about um, is that we have plenty of other indicators as well that that we look at if we're you know being quantitative about election forecasting, but if we're trying to assess whether or not the public supports something or whether or not it's a good idea. And so you know in in the book I um, 
reference this decision matrix presented by political scientists that predict government outcomes or how legislators would vote for something in which polls are not the only input into that process, but their own convictions are the sort of pressures that they get from interest groups and activists and public opinion as revealed by other sources. So from the media, from broader discussion as well. Um, and if, if I'm making, an, or the argument I'm making in the book is that polls deserve a place in that matrix, but they definitely don't, shouldn't, shouldn't be the only one, um, you know, because of all of these problems. So if we're trying to um, predict uh, the outcome of the congressional elections um, uh, this year, uh, we have a s- s- several problems uh, with, with doing that now. Uh, one is we don't know who's going to turn out to vote. Uh, one is we might not be reaching the, the right people that we need to. Uh, and another is that people might be undecided or might be likely to, to change their mind in a, a particular direction. How would you rate the relative importance of, of those in in us being able to predict the right answer? To answer the question in an entirely different way, <laughs> the big thing I'm worried about um, is people using overall top-line presidential approval ratings to predict election outcomes now. Now that we're more polarized uh, in our vote choice, presidential approval rating might be less predictive. And that a president like Joe Biden today could have a presidential approval rating of 37% because he's not liked by lots of Democrats who are loyal in the election regardless. I think that's going to be the biggest, that's going to be the biggest factor in whether or not these past models hold. Um, but that's that's in terms of, you know, use, using polls as input into models, not the direct observations of the polls themselves. And I would still expect the generic ballot poll for the House to be pretty uh, pretty reliable. One, one problem there with the prediction, right, is that if there's fewer competitive congressional races than there are in the past, then swings in the national popular vote translate to fewer swings in seats. And so those models have to take polarization into account uh, as well. And that's something we've tried to do at The Economist, but it's, it's not obvious how you would want to do that. Maybe you could use some things we've tried or like using in the models as an independent variable, the share of people who say they voted for a different presidential candidate in the last election than the one before it. Um, uh, we, you could also think about maybe using as an input, the difference in partisan approval ratings of a president. But if you know, you're, we're in this environment now where it looked like polarization is lower because there's lots of liberals and young people that are Democrats that disapprove of the president. So even that sort of falls apart in certain ways. It's not a 100% um, solution. So in, in terms of polls predicting congressional races, that's sort of the big problem right now um, is how polarization changes all of our equations. And is that, uh, so I understand the, the point about how people are using presidential approval, but is part of that that we actually know something about voters that they don't know, which is that they may uh, be disappointed with their side, um, but that has not usually translated into them supporting the other side uh, in, in an election? Well, I, I would think that voters know that about themselves too. I mean, so I'm a young person. When I, when I talk to other people in the under 30 age group on, on polls, they also say, you know, whatever, if they're disapproving of Joe Biden, oh, well, he's too old. Some of them say he's too, he's too centrist. He's neoliberal. He's not, you know, buy, you know buying into the things that, that I want him to buy into. And so he's sort of like a, a bad leader or, or what have you. But then they say, I, I could never vote for a Republican. Um, and that, and so that shows up directly, directly in the polling. I mean, if you take a cross tab of Democratic vote intention in November by presidential approval, you still see that this disapproval and by and by party ID, you still see that the Democratic group is um, strongly, strongly pro D for November. So you uh, work for a magazine where most people uh, spend more time talking re- talking to people as a form of uh, reporting. Um, so kind of compare just. Uh, the the relative merits of taking a poll versus something like a focus group or just man on the street interviews for thinking about public opinion. Uh, you know, I really wish there, if there are any focus group companies listening that want a media partner, the Economist doesn't typically do that. We typically interview people who do focus groups for other outlets, but that's something we would probably be interested in. Uh, we do have this partnership with YouGov where we do the the weekly surveys, and part of the value there is in the like absolute measures of public opinion that are revealed in any survey, but also also in the trends. Um, I mean, we, we have the data going back to 2000, 
and nine. And you don't really get that in an, in an, in an objective way when you're doing sort of man on the street canvassing or interviewing um, or necessarily in the focus groups. So, so that's a signal that's that you get from polling that you don't really get from another source. It's also fast and pretty cheap now. If you, even with online reputable outlets like YouGov, it's a lot cheaper than a live call or phone survey. Um, you know, there's certainly cheaper, <laughs> cheaper ways to conduct polling than to do the matched online non-probability samples. But as we were sort of talking about earlier, it's questionable whether or not those online um, outlets that don't invest a lot of money into their methodologies are uh, sort of worth it, I would say, or revealing good portraits of the public. Um, so is there anything that's we, better about the the more qualitative uh, ways of looking at, at public? Yeah, opinion? we certainly do still talk to people. <laughs> I mean, uh, we use all the other sources of information in, in our polling, um, or sorry, in our reporting. Po- polling is, is just pretty accessible. But, you know, at the end of the day, it is just another way of talking to people and you don't want to only rely on sort of that one mode of interviewing them. Um, uh, I, I think, I think the focus groups are also pretty, pretty interesting in that, you know, they're typically focused on people who are cross cross pressured psychologically or who have changed their vote choice recently. And so you're exposed to groups of people that you normally wouldn't be exposed to in media narratives or reporting. Um, I mean, part is, I think partisans anecdotally just get the sort of lion's share of, um, of media attention for the sort of sky is falling polarization, you know, we're so divided takes that seem to be around the corner, um, every single, you know, every single week. Uh, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm certainly not only ever looking at polling data. So we've been mostly talking about uh, election polls, but you uh, make a case uh, for the importance of issue polling uh, and the the responses I usually get on this are that uh, polling is still good because most issue polls show large majorities uh, for for one uh, side and uh, it doesn't have to be uh, as as precise, uh, in other words, and problems with uh, partisan non-response uh, don't necessarily lead to huge problems with uh, issue polling. Uh, but uh, as you know, uh, studies of the connections between issue polling and ballot uh, propositions uh, in some ways invalidate both of those <laughs> claims. They say that you really shouldn't believe large majorities for one side uh, of an issue uh, area because when it is debated, it's going to come down. Uh, and uh, that uh, there really might be uh, problems uh, when it comes to predicting uh, that are just as big as the problems we have in election polling. What do you think? My reading of the ballot referendum prediction using polling literature is that it's not the conclusions not don't trust polls ever on these issues. But if you're trying to predict an outcome, you have to of a ballot referendum, you have to take another angle, another dimension to public opinion into account, which is the status quo bias acting on voter preferences um, downstream. I mean, ballot referendums also have other forces that could push the outcome to deviate from the true public opinion of the whole population. So also, right, I guess before I say that, like the population of people voting in the ballot initiatives is not um, not uh, the same as the population being polled typically. But, you know, there's, there's lots of propaganda in all elections and in ballot referendums, you have fewer guardrails against that sort of propaganda because there's, you know, less um, indirect selection. Um uh, there, there tends to be a little less deliberation just because the timeline for these things is shorter. That's, I think, decreasing now. It seems like ballot initiatives, uh, campaigns um, take uh, take a you know take their sweet time these days, and there's more of them. Um, you know, I guess which, which is good from the statistical perspective of trying to dissect these differences between true opinion and um, and revealed opinion and of status quo bias, but. The takeaway that I, I got is that the, the further are the further away you are from 50-50, the more you want to be, the more carefully you want to be with um, whether or not you're capturing something that's valuable. So even if the true opinion on, say, universal background checks for guns is 80 or 90 percent, um, if it's not predictive, you have to think about how you want to use that number. And you probably shouldn't just throw it away, right? But you also want to sort of, you know, you want to temper your expectations for if there's going to be a ballot initiative, you want to wonder how you're going to push your congressman to support the thing that you think people around you support if they think um, that a different way of revealing that opinion would give a different result. 
So let me re-ask that in a different way, because you refer to it as the, you know, the true opinion might be different than the opinion as revealed in the in the ballot measure campaign. Um, but or course, or it might be somewhere in between, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean, the forces could be canceling each other out, I, I guess, too. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I think there's there's also reason to believe that, um, you know, rather than it being easier to do issue polling, it should be harder. Uh, there's all kinds of uh, wording effects. Uh, there's uh, non-opinions in the uh, electorate uh, compared to something like a presidential election. Uh, so uh, I guess, is it really true that we should uh, be less worried about issue polling uh, than election polling, given some reasons to believe that it should actually be harder to find what the true opinion is. I, I think it's just an argument for being more careful with, with the data. Uh, and that's this, I mean, that's the, 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 I think point of view um, that someone who sort of knew about, knew about public opinion research and read the book would come away with. I mean, one thing we're doing in this conversation is thinking about polls as a research process and um, as a statistical data generating process that has, you know, tons of different actors along the way to, to, like human behavior is also stochastic. Our, our psychologies are, you know, all, all over the, the place. Um, and that's not really the conversation. That's not the narrative. That's not the conventional wisdom about polling. Right. Uh, I mean, so if we're, if we're thinking about polls as political scientists here in this conversation, that's kind of what I want everyone else to do when they're thinking about polls as, as general election tools. Also, uh, I'm not trying to skirt your question. I, I just, I'm, I'm just sort of under, underscoring that um, that if you know, I, I'm I'm not saying that these problems don't exist. But the the broader purpose of this is to say, you know, let's think about these tools as researchers. Um, I, I, you know, the direct studies in the book about the quality of of the issue positions is from these Pew simulation studies of of looking at differences in opinion if you're weighting by different partisan groups. Um, even they find differences after those reweightings in their opinion, in their opinions, in their sort of pre-election polling, and in their high-quality benchmark polls. So uh, I agree that these are problems, especially especially the non-attitude issue um, that polls uh, that polls run into, especially because you know you get higher response rates against uh, among politically engaged people. Um, so the solution there is probably to try to find those low engaged engagement responses like Pew is trying to do with their um, mail surveys and SSRS is doing this also. That's the pollster for, um, for CNN. Um, so, so those are, those are areas that pollsters are, are looking into to try to combat some of these, some of these issues. Um, but you know, the way, the way I'm thinking of this is not, uh, or, or the way I think about the data when I'm, when I'm doing my work, when I'm, when I'm writing, it's not that any single poll is giving you the like, like ground truth measure for the opinion, but that you want to look at all of the polls as distributions, both the distribution of all the polling data you get, but also like the distributions that the error in the data generating process, so to speak, could be generating. And that is a pretty uncertain portrait. I mean, you don't, you, you, you do not want to make decisions um, only on polls in general, but especially if the opinion is like 52% or 55% um, even. Now, these measures are pretty unbiased they tend to be across um, question wording. So that's one thing also to look for is polls with different question wording. Um, uh, it, it's super expensive, but the the, re the real thing here that uh, seems promising to me every time I keep coming back to it is the sort of deliberative polling stuff. So tout uh, some, uh, your chance to get wonky to tout some of the uh, recent improvements in, in polling. Uh, you point to some use of, of Mr. P for geographic uh, better representativeness um, and some of the online survey companies. Um, so, so tell us what the, the cutting edge looks like. The biggest developments that I tell the story of with this certain you know, associated characters in the book um, uh, are, are two things. First is the development by some Obama campaign staffers, Aaron Hartman and her colleagues in the data cave there in 2012 of uh, polls that are taking partisan and other types of response rate into account when they're selecting people to, to poll um, off of the voter file. So they can, you know, they'll conduct a poll and they'll see what variables are associated with um, non-response using statistical models, using some pretty advanced machine learning stuff. These days, but back then, not um, quite as sophisticated um, 
Uh, and of course, we could have a whole debate about whether or not you wanted to use a machine learning model or a logit model or whatever. <laughs> um, uh, and and then you know once they get this predicted probability of how likely is someone to re- to respond to a survey, then they select them inversely proportional. Again, so you said we were going to get wonky, so let's get wonky. And um, that allows pollsters, you know, in theory, to correct for non-response in the sample selection stage. So they have, so they rely less on weighting, and they can target the problem, you know, sort of before it happens and biases their data. Of course, it's not perfect. The New York Times used a method of or a type of, was a variant of this methodology in 2020, and they still had big errors. And partly that's due to not having um, voter registration uh, on the voter file, uh, sorry, party registration on the voter file in every state. Um, so you can't apply those adjustments in every state. And if we have an electoral system where states are mattering sort of increasingly, uh, uh, the difference between them and the popular vote sort of determining outcomes, then that's not going to be a solution forever either. Um, M- MRP, Mr. P lovingly called, or maybe maybe we want to call uh, double regression and post-stratification, or maybe even Mrs. P with sh- you know shrinkage and synthetic post-stratification um, are all different methodologies to, to try to transform sort of cheap, cheaper obtained national polls, uh, transforming them into estimates of state opinion. So that can be valuable to someone like me who doesn't have access to high quality estimates of state opinion. Um, you can transform our national surveys uh, into estimates of, of the electoral college vote and provide a better you know, sense of the election outcome. Uh, but also there, it's not perfect. I mean, one thing that the Mr. P algorithms can let us do if we're using Bayesian statistics is directly account for uncertainty that goes beyond the margin of sampling error. So we can be a little more honest about, or a lot more honest about how accurate or inaccurate our estimates are going to be. What do you make of just um, uh, differences uh, in uh, polling uh, based on uh, a format? Uh, we, even if we are reaching the same people, we often get different answers in the online uh, format versus uh, phone format. Uh, lots of the academic surveys switched in the middle of COVID to some new <laughs> format uh, that we didn't have previous experience with. And we seem to be finding that a lot of trends break uh, or have very different estimates in one um uh, forum than the other. Uh, is that a reason also to, to think that we're not really getting very precise estimates, uh, whichever one we're using? So the recommendation at the end of the book is that you don't want to rely only on one mode for polling nowadays. Because we have technologies where you can ask someone a, a poll with a live caller interview or with a robocaller, although maybe we shouldn't do that over text message or online, or even face-to-face or on mail, um, then you can combine those things. And so pollsters are turning to mixed-mode samples to try to look at those differences between their methods. Um, campaign pollsters, private pollsters, have been doing this for some time now. Uh, you know, Their reputation sort of relies on being accurate. I mean, they, they sort of like lose clients and their livelihood if they're not. So the, that's a signal that that's sort of one direction to move into. Now, certainly not saying that all private polls are <laughs> conducted to the highest methodological standard, but uh, those mixed mode surveys are sort of the, the development here that they, um, the way pollsters are trying to combat this issue. So one thing you, you, uh, one thing I see in the history of polling, you know, when I'm writing this book, when I'm talking about it, is that um, there are constant problems with surveying. And it's almost always, pollsters are almost always trying to fight their last battle. They observe issues, at least from the methodological side, and try to adjust for them after um, the fact. So, you know, there's like no promise that these things are going to work, that mixed mode sampling, for example, is going to work. Um, And of course, you can have, as we have now, the political engagement problem um, across modes. So that's the one to really look out for. I, I remember, you know, in our in the Economist polling with YouGov of the 2020 Democratic primary, for example, the polls are from the Economist uh, or the polls from YouGov, I should say, are systematically more favorable to Elizabeth Warren after all the waiting, even after some political and engagement waiting, um, because it, you know, evidently. Um, uh, Elizabeth Warren supporters were more likely to be politically engaged and therefore more likely to take online surveys after controlling for everything else. And so, and so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of uncertainty there too. And that gets back to this primary election problem. I mean, that, that is just sort of another, another argument with not writing 
headline news about every single news survey that comes out, but taking these things, um, uh, taking the full shape of opinion is revealed towards multiple distributions into account. And I understand that's a really statistical argument. Like not everyone's going to be able to perform those calculations or whatever, but you know, maybe that's an argument for every single person in America buying the book, or maybe that's an argument for people who are producing that type of news just tr- to try to listen to what pollsters are saying um, about their, you know, scientific, but also artful process. So, so that's still mostly on the sampling side though. I guess I'm saying if, if the same person uh, interviewed in different ways uh, expresses different racial attitudes, expresses uh, uh, different views of, of trust in government or trust, social trust in general, uh, bigger differences than ones we find in like change over time, for example, in the same mode. Uh, should that tell us something about the quality of opinions that we are getting? Yeah, you should probably use the mode that is empirically more reliable, I guess. So, I mean, the, the, what, the thing I'm thinking of here is the increase in uh, negative partisanship as revealed by face-to-face and online differences in the ANES. I didn't, I didn't realize that those were the same people being interviewed um, in different modes. That's really interesting new knowledge to me. Um, and uh, in, Not true of that particular example, but there are, oh, studies okay. that, there are studies that do both for the same. Okay. Yeah, but, right, I mean, uh, putting my Bayesian hat on, right? Like when we have priors from one survey, if we have statistical evidence or or even qualitative evidence that those measures aren't reliable or break down in certain circumstances, certainly we should take that into account. And I think I've reported on some of this stuff in the past too. Um, Again, something that doesn't, there's only that doesn't necessarily come up in the book. Um, But, uh, you know, that you know, there are sort of other explanations for the the structure of the book, the narrative, the trade nonfiction, etc. Um, uh, uh, I again, you know, we're having a pretty high level statistics, you know, researcher conversation here. I think that's, you know, I think my our argument is that the press should be doing that more often. So. So you also cover this uh, recent history um, moment when uh, there was a move toward aggregation, that the answer was don't believe any one poll, uh, believe uh, the some kind of averaging or modeling of the polls together. Uh, and obviously you've been a part of that as well. So uh, what is the sort of case that that, that is a major move forward uh, and the case that it, it might have been overblown? I'll give you the way that it works in the past and the way it might not work in the future. Um, so the a- aggregation of polls is advantageous for two reasons. First, because it controls supposedly for sampling variation between surveys, all else being equal, right? Like um, differences in weighting schemes or questionnaires or, or what have you being accounted for in some sort of model. Um, uh, combining polls should give you a better signal of the public opinion. And I think that's empirically valid, certainly. If you take, you know, just sa- samples of five or 10 surveys and predict election outcomes or use those as inputs into your election forecasting models, and then you do the same thing with like hundreds of surveys, you obviously, you know, you, you do empirically get better predictions with hundreds of surveys than less. And that's, you know, not, it's not evident that that should be the case, by the way, you know, like in stock trading, for example, if you just take random samples of stocks, you have the, um, some of the literature says you can like outperform the S and P in a couple, in a couple of years, probably not over the long term. Um, but, uh, so that is a pretty important, uh, technological methodological advancement. It's also a huge improvement over how polls are being reported in the nineties or early, or early two thousands. So when we get the first election poll aggregators and issue poll aggregators in the 2000 or, you know, 2006 with pollster.com with academics like Charles Franklin and Mark Blumenthal. Then we, you know, we get 538. Um, we get a Huffington post pollster, which is the sort of former pollster.com crew with some people in the media. Um, and now it seems like, you know, everyone, <laughs> everyone has a polling aggregator. That is a, that's a huge improvement over reporting, every single poll to me. And it also gives sort of more responsible consumers of the polls and polling journalists, a tool with which to point to a tool that we can use to point to, um, to point out errors in other people's stories to say, well, actually, you know, you know, empirically you want to 
use the average, you cite X study and say, here's what the average is right now. And you like link to the polling average and that sort of workflow um, is uh, only possible with aggregation. Um, you know, it, it also gives us the overtime comparisons that are more robust um, than, than, than campaign narratives would traditionally be where someone would pick out a poll conducted recently and then pick out a, the more favorable poll to show movement in the campaign from a couple months ago. Um, and so in, in a sort of journalistic capacity, also it's more advantageous to have aggregation. Now what aggregation doesn't solve for, well, if aggregation solves for noise in the polling ag- in polls, in the sampling error uh, of polls, it doesn't account for bias. The uh, only way to really account for that bias um, using some of the traditional tools is to just simulate the error of the aggregate by uh, running the model multiple times, um, telling your computer that all the polls could be biased X percentage points in either direction. And that's what election forecasting models do. There are some advancements here to the election forecasting models themselves. Um, uh, in the Economist 2020 election forecasting model that, um, that we built with the help of Andrew Gelman at, at um, Columbia University and his TA, a good friend Merlin Heidemans, um, we uh, included a term in the aggregation model that, as far as we can tell, hasn't been used before to account for um, systematic differences, all else being equal, between pollsters that are trying to account for non-response on their end, partisan non-response on their end and all the other polls. And although that worked out pretty well in 2016, the, the model gives um, in back testing, of course, the, the, the better predictions for Hillary Clinton's um, odds of victory and, and margin of victory in each state. It didn't give us nearly the <laughs> type of performance gains we wanted in 2020, likely because non-response was also a problem within party partisan groups. You know, So the Republicans that were most likely to support um, Trump were less, were least likely to uh, to answer polls. And you know, if you don't have like probabilistic scores for likelihood of supporting Trump in your model, then you can't wait away for that. Um, now, some pollsters do have that sort of information, so maybe a polling aggregate in the future could uh, rely on upweighting those polls or you know just detecting systematic differences between those polling firms and other polling firms. Um, but as, you know, as long as you have a steady stream of data that's biased, then your aggregates are going to be biased too. So that's where communicating uncertainty becomes even more important. Um, and so, you know, and your election forecasting models are, are pretty good at this. I think on average, they're pretty well calibrated. Um, but that statistical calibration, you know, or the, the goodness of fit of those models in being well calibrated, um, not it does not necessarily translate to sort of improving conversation about elections at the same rates. It's still possible that a well-calibrated model could be used to sort of sway opinion about public opinion um, in bad ways. And I think that we saw that in 2016, certainly. So you're asking uh, politicians and the public uh, to believe uh, public opinion polls and, and think about how widely their own opinions uh, are shared uh, by the American public. Uh, at a time when that sounds uh, a tad utopian uh, because we can't even get people to accept the clear election results of the the previous uh, elections. So uh, how can we expect polling to play uh, a important role in democratic responsiveness uh, in in the current resistance to uh, expert information or uh, data of any kind? Yeah, I I really wanted to write an epilogue to the book because there's no great answer to partisan disinformation or bad faith elite opinion leadership that is going to have downstream effects on public opinion and um you you know when i when i talk to the the political science scholars of polls but also to pollsters themselves um they're they're pretty forthright that you you want to you want to put on your like citizen hat here and think about whether or not these opinions that you're revealing in the polls are all that informed or that um, they could be changed over time. So, you know, if, if you have opinions that are informed by propaganda that we really observe even historically during wartime, um, but right now might also observe as the result of polarized information environments, 
um, then you don't want to base all of your decisions on those polls. Um, but if you have an issue that's being polled sort of regularly over time that has a pretty steady stream of information that's you know covered by a wide sort of ideological variety of outlets and by you know smart journalists who are sort of fair to the facts, um, then I think you can trust the opinion on those issues. Um, but I, you know, I, I, I sort of also wanted to <laughs> write in this epilogue um, that that's not necessarily a problem of of the polls themselves. That's sort of a product of of of, of our electoral institutions and sort of the other institutions that are acting on voter psychology. So uh, you don't necessarily knock pollsters for that, but um, that is something else to take uh, into account when you're sort of writing stories about people. So you are a, a student of, of political science and keep uh, close tabs uh, on the, the research, but you also have a, enough a distance uh, f- uh, to give a bit of a critique. Um, polling has historically been very important to uh, how the public perceives uh, social science uh, in general or the kind of capacity for social science. So uh, what, what have you observed in the positives and negatives of especially the relationship between social science uh, and the, the media or informed the public uh and is there any lesson from polling that that we should uh we should take into consideration there that's a great question um in the sort of earliest days of numbers being used in the newsroom we got a book by professor kenneth mayer about how to use numbers in the newsroom how, how polls not just polls but other sorts of information are generated, how to process that information and include it in your stories in context. Um, that I think is huge. I mean, that that book is used in data journalism, but also normal journalism coursework, even to this day. Um, and I uh, I think that data journalism on a whole, if we're taking s- sort of uh, social science scientists in the newsroom to represent social science is a um, is a product of both the increasing quantitative rigor of lots of social science, to which also I think has been positive. I mean, you've written a book about how social science got better, uh, so you, maybe you, you know you would be a better place to answer that question um, than I would. Uh, and um, we, you know, we rely uh, at work now and the data journalism team on lots of social science techniques, like on a daily basis. So um, that's one way that it's shaped our work. And it helps us tell stories we wouldn't otherwise be able to tell, you know, using numbers, we can process, you know, the big data or even small data, what have you, and write stories on the, the, you know, society and the people as revealed by social science, even in ways when we're not doing our own um, social science. So it's also enabled us, that's a way of saying it's enabled us to tell new stories. you know, to, to the extent that quantitative social science and quantitative journalism has taken uh, precision too far in its work, has led people to discover stories in data that are the results of biases or fabrication or what have you, and sort of left some people blind to problems in the data generation process, um, is sort of also, you know, that's also a direct issue the rise of um quantitative journalism and social science here uh again sort of like you know (laughs) you sort of have to blame the bad things on the bad actors to some extent but um uh the corrective there is to have good training for journalists um in how they're processing quantitative social science qualitative social social science too um and uh, you know, when, when I when I talk to data journalism students, most of them have already had social science coursework as well, quantitative and qualitative. Um, so I think this the sort of uh, university campus education on these things too is also improved, and so that improves journalism by way of teaching people how to process that information, if nothing else. So one of the reasons for skepticism uh, on the right of both journalism and uh, academics is that we're disproportionately composed of, of Democrats uh, and liberals. Uh, 
polling or any kind of quantitative data should be a potential check uh, on those uh, biases, um, uh, but uh, there's still skepticism. Uh, is there reason to believe that the uh, characteristics of the, the people who are uh, running surveys and interpreting them uh, matter uh, for uh, how we, the results we get? Certainly, ideologically biased questions pop up a lot, even from public pollsters with presumably, uh, I'm just trying to be careful here with my words, um, neutral partisanship, <laughs> or or people who have you know worked in politics before and are now conducting so-called nonpartisan public polls. Um, the good thing about that is, you know, if the pollsters are releasing a questionnaire, you can check it, and if they're not releasing a questionnaire. You, get, you can sort of rationalize and trust that number less. Um, but that's really incumbent on journalists reporting on that information um, to make those judgments in their reporting of it. And usually, you know, of course, there's some sort of selecting on the dependent variable here, but the journalists I talk to are pretty good at that. That's not all journalists. Um, certainly have outlets outside the mainstream outlets. I think that, are, so that can be even worse with this. Um, that's not necessarily their fault. There is obviously a pressure to produce content in journalism um, for the audience. That's literally the only sort of the only, only way to make money, I guess, in the grand scheme of things. Um, and and so uh, there's going to be some incentives here, other than to tell uh, the truth of of those numbers. Um, but uh, hopefully, you know, when people read the book, they might understand those things and act act accordingly. Um, I'm, I'm hoping the book can be educational, uh, especially along these lines. There's some some examples of ideological, ideologically biased polls in the book um, that sort of serve as a cautionary tale. Um, but uh, the, but you know, it's certainly uh, a real danger along certain axes inside academia. The, the way that those biases might um, present themselves, you know, the academics I talk to seem to be pretty straight shooters, even if they're like 99% liberal. <laughs> That's not a new finding, certainly. So, so the way that those biases might present themselves and the output is in sort of the questions that get asked of the public. If you're only asking about the things that are important to you as an elite on one side of the logical spectrum, you're not, you might not be revealing a fair portrait of the American public opinion as a whole. Um, uh, you know, maybe there could be some issues in the response options to those questions as well. But um, I, I think there's probably more framing effects here than there are effects of actual um, biases in the survey questions themselves. So what's next for you? Is there a, a new uh, book in the offing or what um, will you be looking for in 2022 to write the, the paperback epilogue maybe? The paperback epilogue will you know, would be decisive, decisively, decisively more negative, probably about uh, the polls, mostly as a function of more negative environment for um, the for sort of the government and the public, um, if if one ever materializes. Uh, the really great thing about writing this book, and I really, um, I really enjoyed writing it. It's a sort of departure from my daily job, which is you know, to write essentially. 1,000 words at most, typically closer to 500 words about some story, and then to move on. The great thing was being able to spend a lot of time with the same subject, especially something that I discovered was so important to everyone in our democracy. And I also got to talk to lots of really smart people like you and your colleagues and you know people I've known for a really long time, uh, sort of a relatively long time in the scheme of my, my career, which is also relatively short so far, um, in, in polls and um, political science. So hopefully if there's a, you know, an, another book, it's informed um, by the same themes, by political science, by trying to elevate lots of this information I've learned to um, the public consciousness, try to you know, improve journalism, or maybe even if we're lucky, Im improve democracy. But uh, yeah, we're, uh, I'm going to take a breather before I even think about that next one. And anything we didn't get to that you wanted to include or any take home message uh, you want to leave the listeners with? You know, the book is hopeful about surveys. It is, a, you know, a decisively pro-democracy book. I, I want people to use polls for democratic purposes, even though there's all these caveats that we've talked about here in a pretty tough conversation, by the way, Matt. And uh, aside from all of that, my, my sort of message in the book to reporters is um, if you're going to report on a poll, you need to think about it like you would any 
other product of science. Um, there's, you know, a, a extensive academic data generating process to every single top line number you get from a poll. You have to think about these polls like a science reporter would think about an academic article. That's really the only way to digest this information. So, you know, I don't have that direct message to the press in the book. So I'll put that one here. Hopefully some people will listen and change their minds. Um, and, uh, and that would go even further in sort of changing the conversation about, about polls and changing how we think about how we use them. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center and part of the Democracy Group Network. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. If you like this discussion, I recommend checking out these episodes. How much are polls misrepresenting Americans? How does the public move right when policy moves left? The hyper-involved versus the disengaged? The role of political science in American life? And interpreting the early results of the 2020 election? Please check out Strength in Numbers and then listen in next time. <laughs>